Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and uh, this is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been nearly 300 of them now, and if you'd like to check out the archives, go to batgap.com. There's also a donate button there, which I always mention at the beginning of interviews in case people don't make it to the end, because uh, this whole thing depends upon and relies upon the support of people who enjoy listening to it. Uh, my guest today is Enza Vita. Enza is in Adelaide, Australia, where it is about almost midnight now. Um, and she heroically has uh, stayed up late and drunk more coffee than she's accustomed to drinking at this hour in order to participate in this conversation. I met Enza about three, four years ago at the Science and Non-Duality Conference. In, uh, at that time, it was in San Rafael, California. She, she came to a uh, presentation that I was moderating, which you can find on BatGap. It was a panel discussion with, well, it doesn't matter. It's a panel discussion on, uh, and um, her, her, she was noticeable in the audience, very bright. And afterwards, she came up and participated in a very deep conversation with one of the uh, participants in the panel. And so um, I met her husband, her partner, Leo. Uh, Drioli, who is a musician, and the two of them had flown all the way over. And I, I always had it in the back of my mind that I'd like to interview Enza, and finally we were doing it. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And it's good we waited, because in the years since we met, you've written this book, Always Already Free, which I read in its entirety I this week and really enjoyed. Yes. Actually, that book was ready five years ago. It's just never got published until now. Ah. <laughs> but I hear you were something of a perfectionist in terms of, uh, you know, really making sure it was clear and, and it was dub. Well, how the book started, basically, it was it wasn't meant to be a book. All mm. that that was was just my journals that I kept uh, as I was going through different experiences prior to realization and after realization. And um, and basically, one day, Leo said, can I see what you've been writing in those in those journals? And I showed him some, and, and he said, you know, they're good. You should consider getting them published. Mm -hmm. And obviously, they were, not, they were just uh, jumbled up notes of everything. In the middle of it, there were quotes of Nigasagadatta, quotes of other teachers. And, you know, and I also had, I have got the bad habit that when I hear something or somebody in a book or something, I write it down in my journal, right? And sometimes I don't even give a credit. So it was a little bit of a mess trying to my Jennifer, my really trusty uh, assistant. I gave it to her. She typed it all. She put it through different copy Skype making sure. And she would say, Miss Enzo, we found another one. She meant that it's not yours. I said, oh, who is it this time? Miss Agadada. Oh, I knew that I didn't write that or something. So anyway, it took a process like that of trying to get rid of all this stuff. And, um, but then it still was very thick. And some of the stuff wasn't really appropriate <clears throat> anymore because I changed. And um, so I kept on revising and revising and revising it until it got to the present format Good. that it is now. <clears throat> well, I thought it was really clear. Lately, I've been, been in the habit of just reading people's books or listening to their talks and stuff and not taking a lot of notes. I just kind of feel like I get to know them by reading their book or listening to their in other talks and interviews. So that's what I did. And as I read, I, there were, you know, if you had been sitting in the room, we could have had conversations about just every page, just about every page in the book, you know, because there's all sorts of interesting points that come up, some of which 
concur with my experience and understanding, and some of which differed a little bit. And I thought, well, I'd like to question her about that. But I think all this will come out during the course of this conversation. So you're from Sicily originally, which is in an island off the southern coast of Italy, and it's part of Italy. It's where the mafia is from. The Pope yes, says, do you Pope want me says, to start with that? You might as well start, and you know. <laughs> uh, the, the, po the Pope said the, the mafia can't be considered good Catholics anymore. We do have mafia, and actually, I wasn't going to talk about this, but some relatives in my family were involved. Uh. We never did, because my dad didn't really belong to, you know, he's usually passed on to the male mm. lineage. So my dad married my mom, and he wanted to have nothing to do with it. But actually, I remember my grandmother being visited by some guys when I was a, a kid, and he seemed a very nice guy. I found out after that he was, wasn't that nice. <laughs> <laughs> and so you grew up in Sicily. And, um, you know, there's a pattern that I've recognized among many people that I've interviewed and other spiritual people that I know about, which is that very often they, they have stuff going on when they're little kids. You know, they, it's, they don't necessarily have a normal childhood. They have no. unusual experiences. Um, and you know, I, my explanation for that would be that you know we all come into this life at varying degrees of evol of spiritual evolution. Some very highly evolved, some maybe close to realization, some very far from it, probably due to development in past lives, and uh, mm. that therefore some kids are just inclined to, to sort of be different from from their peers and to have interesting spiritual experiences at a very young age. Yeah, I definitely was different and my family didn't really understand what was going on and I think we we talked about it with uh, Jerry as well. Actually when I was probably five or six years old uh, they took me to a psychologist because there was a, a sister of my dad that had some sort of a mental illness. So they obviously were very afraid that that's what was going on with me. Because yeah. I'll be talking about lights, I'll be talking about out-of-body experiences. I didn't use those words, I didn't know what they were. I'll be talking about lucid dreaming where I'll be awake in, in the dream state. And so they thought there's something wrong with this child. And uh, as a kid, it was actually traumatic for me to see how worried my parents were. And I decided that I wasn't going to talk about my experiences after that time, you know, so my mom crying, uh, worried that there was something wrong with me and sort of I zipped it from then on because mm. I thought that I, I couldn't really. But I had all sorts of experiences like that and at first I thought everybody was having them. But when I talked to my sisters or my friends, that wasn't happening. And so, yeah, and I also had some what you call memories of past life. Yeah, I didn't know back then what they were, but monks with red robes that I'd never seen before. See, I grew up in a, this little village. There was only like 1,500 people. We didn't even have a library. I used to catch the bus to go to school. So there was absolutely nothing. There was a church and there was the local priest. And that was the closest that I could get to spirituality. And I would love to, uh, I love to sort of sneak back into the church even when nobody was there. And we had this really old priest um, and he wasn't very friendly. He was like, what are you doing here? Go home. Um, <laughs> and after he left, after he left, a young priest, probably in his 20s, came and he was a lot more friendly. And so he became, you know, my first teacher where I'll, I'll be going there and sort of asking questions and 
and he was very nice. You know, he, he would just try to answer however he could. But eventually, even he had to say, okay, just one question. <laughs> so I had to think really carefully which question I wanted to ask. So you were full of questions. I was full of questions because I was having all these experiences and nobody seemed to know what they were. What know? sort of experiences and, uh, were you having? Well, apart the experiences of like every night, I would go over the roof of the houses mm -hmm. in this sort of a uh, transparent ball. Mm -hmm. And I would also sneak out at night on top of the roof and uh, I would sit there and I would just look at the stars and I would just feel so amazing. Um, and I would fall asleep there sometime and wake up in the morning. I would have lucid dreaming where I would be awake in the dream. So there wasn't much difference between my normal everyday life and the dream state. I'll be fully awake. And this yeah, is like pretty young, five, stuff. six years old. Very young. And also, also, you know, I was a pretty strange child. You know, when I was born, the nerve of this eye got damaged. And so by the age of one years old, the eye was blind. Oh. And yes, it's still blind, sort of. I can see a little bit. But back then, the eye also become cross-eyed, mm -hmm. right? And in Sicily, there is this... Um, because you couldn't see. Uh, in Sicily, there is this thing that people that have this sort of condition, they actually have psychic powers, right? Oh. So there was this, together with what they heard about experiences I was having, because I was talking, you know, when I was little, I didn't know that I had to shut up, right? So I was like the little witch of the village, you know? It's a good a thing it wasn't a few hundred child. years earlier. No, well, and, and that's the thing, when, if you're a girl and, um, and you have, I guess, the a facial disfigurement. Back then, it wasn't as socially accepted mm. as well. And, um, you know, but I guess in, in retrospect, you know, and the way the kids teasing me and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but in, in retrospect, I realized that um, it made me closer to people that were different. Mm. You know, they were imperfect, you know, mm. uh, because I considered myself imperfect um, because of this this uh, this problem and uh, and I realized that everybody felt imperfect in some way or another and, and that this one was just a an exterior thing they just showed um, how everybody felt yeah. there was something wrong with them <laughs> yeah so it was a great gift and a great teacher it's interesting the whole thing about insanity and spirituality and you know how sometimes they're mistaken for one another and you know some people might have thought you were crazy and i know in, in in my own life my mother actually did go insane and spend years in mental hospitals but she was also a very spiritual person and and this all started out with like you know messing around with a ouija board and and then she thought she was talking to her mother and then she started seeing auras around things she started seeing auras around trees mm. and everything mm. and yet she was you know really flipping out um so did you ever have uh times when you, you know, not only maybe your friends, but you thought that maybe you were kind of going crazy because, you know, you were in such a different state then? Um, not when I was young. Mm -hmm. um, later in life, just prior to my realization, there was a period in my life where um, uh, things were going on with my mind, 
that I felt that, ooh, what's going on is scary, you know? Yeah. I would tell my, one of my teachers, I feel like I'm going nuts because I'll be at night and I would watch my mind spinning by itself and I was just watching it and I couldn't do anything about it. Was that when you were asleep or awake? Awake, fully uh -huh. awake. I would uh -huh. just see the mind machine just going faster and faster and faster and faster and as if I was almost locked out. Hmm. So I was having all these strange experiences leading up to um, the realization. Yeah, well we might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves but you know seems to me, from what I've observed over the years, and probably you have too, that uh, realization necessitates a, a, and actually can be defined as a huge transformation. And um, when you go from point A to point B, you know, going from ordinary state to a, a realized state, all kinds of stuff has to get rearranged in your psychology, your physiology, and all. And, and sometimes that can be quite tumultuous, you know. It is, and it still is. I'm still going through some stuff mm -hmm. of that, some remains of that, because as that realization comes in into the body, because people think that um, the realization of our transcendental state is it, right. it's finished, <laughs> right? So you go up the mountain and you have all these amazing experiences. You can have amazing, some, some people don't, you know, your, your mind stops, your thoughts stop, you, you're blissed out all the time and all this stuff. So it's very easy for us to think that we've reached the ultimate state, but it's not the end. In a way, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Yeah. yeah. It's just the beginning. In the first few years after my realization, after the first stage, I guess, the realization of my transcendental nature, all I wanted to do is actually sit in my backyard mm -hmm. and just immerse myself in this amazing, I guess, love, and I think that's what people do, you know, and they think this is it, this is the end. But it's all, almost like you're allowed to stay there a little while and then, you know, something within yourself, if we're talking like that, if we're talking duality, you know, like in, du in dual um, terms, then we say the divine says that, time to get back, yeah. time to go, time to descend back from the mountain into the worlds of time and space. Mm. And reminded of the Zen ox herding pictures, you've probably seen those, you know, the different stages. And there's the transcendental stage where there's nothing to be seen anymore, it's just a blank canvas. But then eventually the guy comes back into the marketplace, you know, riding the ox, big smile on his face. Yes, yes. And the descent is very important because, you know, at first you resist because you know you don't want to leave the space of absolute beauty. And also one of the characteristics is that the soul, if you want to talk the soul, wants to go deeper into it, go, go deeper into the absolute. <laughs> but in a way, you're not leaving it, right? You're bringing it with you back into the world. You descend, and as you descend, you don't descend as a god, you descend as a human being. And you take on, again, the garments of human limitations. So you start feeling the fears, you start feeling the thoughts, you start feeling the emotions. But now you know that all thoughts and all emotions are not arising in a separate person here called Enza, but they're arising in that one being in which everything is sharing with. When we realize that, I guess our life takes on a deep value and sacredness because we realize that the divine is experiencing itself 
as everything, um, as the world, in and as the world, in and as all others, and in and as us. And, uh, and I guess when that happened, with the, with the descent and also with the conscious suffering, because up until now, we, we have suffered, but the, the suffering was mostly unconscious. And when we choose to come back as and be a, a conscious participant to that divine play, then something else starts happening where I guess a, a love and compassion, it doesn't come from the body-mind unit, but it comes from that source starts coming in and when this love and compassion marries with the power of transcendence, it becomes like the divine impulse that um, is the will and the wish to help other people into the realization of their highest potential, which is enlightenment. Mm. So, you know, the transcendental state is just the first, the first bit. There has to be that maturity then, that then sees the divine in everything, you know, and I guess this is then what we call true bhakti. The true bhakti is the love that sees the beloved everywhere. And this is when it starts really maturing because we, then we are conscious participant of life or all of life. We are the transcendental, but we also are everything here and there's no separation. Oh, there's a lot of great stuff in what you just said. Um... I was reminded of a Rumi quote where, um, you know, Rumi says, uh, God sleeps in the rock, dreams in the plant, stirs in the animal, and awakens in the human being. And That's right. It's, um, and the implication is that God is imminent, it's God is all-pervading in, in creation, in, in all those things, but these different mediums, rock, plant, animal, human, have different, different capacities to reflect or express the divine, and somehow I was reminded of that as you were speaking. And, and it's funny because before we started, I was remembering a conversation that um, you were having with Mark McCooey at the Science and Non-Duality Conference when you were, uh, after our little uh, presentation we gave, and I overheard you guys talking about God consciousness as opposed to self-realization, at least that, that's what I thought you were talking about. And your friend Leanne from Adelaide sent in the question, do you believe the term self-realization God realization are the same states. If not, how do you see the difference? And I think you've kind of just laid it out because you were saying that yeah. there was a transcendental phase, which was like self-realization, yes. uh, but then it seems to have matured into a much more devotional, divine-oriented, service-oriented, divine in, in the world kind of orientation. We seem to think that um, realization is somehow uh, bringing the story of the me, mm -hmm. of the separate self that we believe to be, to a satisfactory conclusion. Mm. But actually what happens is that it is realized that the me that we believe as us to be, the separate person, is not an aware being. And not a what? The, it's not an aware being. An aware being. being, I see. Yes. The only aware being is the one being in which everyone shares in, everything mm -hmm. shares in. So that's the only aware being. This aware being expresses itself through everything. Mm -hmm. World, stars, you and me, everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when people say there is no one here, 
I guess that's true in one sense. There is no separate person here, but the divine is, is experiencing itself through each one of us mm -hmm. at every moment. And, and that's, I guess, that's the God realization. There is only one being. Uh, when people talk about non-duality, they think that that means just one, one, one thing. But uh, the non-duality is we are that one being, but we also, uh, we are everything else yeah. as well. Um, both. Both apply. I don't mind the way you're sitting. It's kind of pretty, but uh, you don't need to lean in really close if you don't want to. Uh, you can just sit back and relax. <laughs> no, I get excited. Oh, then that's okay. <laughs> that's why I do that. <laughs> In a minute, I'll be standing up. Okay, good. <laughs> then we'll just see your, your belly. <laughs> um, there's a line that, from The Incredible String Band that I, I, you just reminded me of, which was, Light that is one, though the lamps be many. It wouldn't be true to say there are no lamps, but rather it's the same light shining through all lamps. But that doesn't mean there are no lamps. Would you agree that it's not true to say there are no people, uh, your children are, are an illusion or something. It's like, okay, you are a person, but you're just not only a person. You know, there's a much vaster reality to what you essentially are. But that sort yep. of shines through the person. Absolutely. There is a huge difference between saying that there is no one here and in a way that it's a narcissistic insensitivity to the pain of others and also to the beauty of the world and to actually realize that directly and in a way that opens our heart and dissolves the apparent separation between transcendental and ordinary reality. That's nice. <clears throat> yeah, because I mean, there are teachers running around or have been saying that sort of thing. And, uh, and if someone comes to them with a heart-rending story, like my child got hit by a car, they actually might respond by saying, there is no child. There's no one there. There, there's there, no there one is there. no car. This there is, is no one. Right. This That's is just wrong. a story. You know, nothing happened. Whew. Maybe on some ultimate level that's true, but it's not the whole picture. No, definitely not. Realization doesn't mean that we are disconnected from our feelings. Right. Doesn't mean that we don't have any feel or disconnected from the world. It's not as if we are sitting in this space where there is nothing. We don't have to care about anything. You know, who wants to become that? Who wants to become that kind of an idiot? The point is that, of course, there is, there is people and all this is happening and it's all one being. Ultimately, it's all one being experiencing itself through everything. Don't know, do you want to say more? No, that's okay. I can, I can, or you can keep going. I mean, how could it be anything other than one being? Because if we analyze anything, you know, what is this? It's, it's paper. But then what is paper? You go, okay, it's molecules. What are they? They're atoms. What are atoms? They're subatomic particles. What are they? Well, you get down to something that's not even physical. And, uh, you know, that some, right. some scientists are actually, you know, they call it the vacuum state, and some scientists, John Hagelin, who was in that presentation I referred to, equates with consciousness and makes a really good argument of how the, the, the essential nature of what appears to be physical is consciousness, and that, that is obviously your essential nature. But, you know, having gone through all that, that is not to say there is no book, you know, and that we couldn't read this book and get something from it. So there's kind of a, yeah. a both-and appreciation of yeah. the universe. And there are, there are obviously paths and teachers that say that there is nothing that we as the separate person can do to awaken. 
And this, of course, is absolutely true. But if there is still a person there, if we're still identified with the apparent person, then to say that there is nothing or there is nothing to do or that we're already enlightened, it's like deluding ourselves and um, just putting a, a veneer of lofty thoughts over, over our suffering, our suffering of separation. And now usually I find that these people are even in a worse position than they were before they started seeking because now they sort of with the denial of their suffering, they just live in a world where this connection is interpreted as being peace. Mm. And um, but sooner or later, God is always very merciful. Sooner or later, uh, our, our suffering will resurface in full measure and we will be forced to confront what we thought that we left behind. So it's just a stage. Yeah, it's a stage that some people stay in for a long time, but it's a stage. Yeah. And actually, in the big picture of things, how, 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 how vast the span of time really is, I guess it's not a long time. No. <laughs> just a blink of an uh, eye. I, I run into these people and, and you know, who say there's nothing to do, and, and usually what they... I don't know, it becomes sort of an excuse to not do anything, really, if you think there's nothing to do. And then, but then, well, you got to do something, so I might as well get on the internet and start telling other people there's nothing to do. Yes, yeah. <laughs> there are, I always see, they, they even come sometime on my Facebook, um, and there are little wars on Facebook or social media about the two camps. Yeah. There's nothing to do, and you have to do something. And, you know, even this is a stage, because I guess when you see that everything is that, then... You lose interest in, in telling people um, that, for example, they are doing bowing, uh, bowing, and um, bowing. Is that the yeah, right bowing, like you bow to bowing. A, a you know, yeah, that's zen, that's zen. You know, and mm -hmm. they do a lot of mantras. Uh, these people say, "Oh, well, that's a, a, a dual practice," you know. But but it's like you you don't care about telling them um, that these practices are not necessary, and at the same time, you don't go around telling the real radical non-dualist, you know, that they say that there is no practice. You, you don't care about telling them that practice can be as natural as breathing. So yeah. um, everyone is trying to find their path there and every uh, path there is valid uh, for that particular individual. Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I say, well, you know, people say, well, you shouldn't do any practice because it reinforces the notion of a practicer. <laughs> And I, I respond, well, then you shouldn't eat because it reinforces the notion of an eater. <laughs> That's right. The, there are the two prominent stories are you have to meditate to get enlightened or you don't have to meditate. In some places they tell us, oh, you just need to drop the search. Drop the, because you're already there, you know, like some type of enlightenment by declaration, I guess. Uh, and maybe it works for some, but I guess me, for me, it didn't work. I, I just traveled the road of yeah. suffering and seeking and studying and uh, and then one day come to an end and and then you so dropped the search it dropped and it, dropped it dropped itself that's right yeah and i guess ultimately awareness our true nature accepts everything if somebody says that practice is needed usually awareness will say yeah okay and if somebody says the practice is not needed awareness is able to embrace paradox and will say Okay. It's not only the mind can't do that, see, and, and I guess this is the point. If we are in a state where something is has been excluded, whether it's the ordinary world or something else, 
this is a good sign that we're probably in a, still in a dualistic state, mm. even though we might think that we reached the ultimate. There was this Ramana Maharshi quote that somebody sent me, and I meant to look it up before this interview and I forgot, but um, basically, well, first of all, he was fond of using the old saying, it takes a thorn to remove a thorn, and that, you know, even though ultimately practices might not make sense or be necessary, they have a, a function at a certain stage. But also the quote I was referring to was something where he said it's a very rare individual who is just on the brink of realization and doesn't need to do anything and they're just going to fall into it or with just yeah. some slight guidance or something. But for the vast majority, I'm roughly paraphrasing, but this is what he said, for the vast majority, there are all sorts of things that one might benefit from and make progress through. And there goes the word progress, which we can talk about. You know, he's held up as the sort of gold standard of, of spiritual mm. teachers these days. And mm. yeah, that's basically what he said. I mean, Ramana Maharshi, at first you would give, I never met him, but I've studied some of his stuff. And um, you would give to people the ultimate truth. There is nothing to do. Right. But not everyone could understand immediately that. And Small then minority. If, yeah, if that wouldn't happen, then you would give them other things. In mantras, meditations, and I actually heard a story, I'm not sure how true it is, somebody told me, that he, he told one of his um, people that were around, he was being really hard on them, you know, where everybody was allowed to sit around him, and he was a very sweet man, Ramana Mahashi. This particular disciple, he would always send him to do work and all this sort of stuff, uh, you know, like work for, for everyone else, and never had the chance to meditate. And even the, some of the other people, they started thinking, why are you being a little bit so harsh, you know, on him? And yet, after many years of this guy doing service and never even seeming to meditate, mm. once he finally was allowed in and he sat down to meditate, he was right and bang, it yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so he needed, he needed that service to others to remove the obstacles. So everybody finds their own way there, I guess, you know. It's a good point. Judge. Yeah, uh, Shankara talks about the fact that not everyone is ready for uh, Jnana Yoga or the, the sort of the highest non-dual teaching that various types of service and meditation and practices, Karma Yoga, yeah. different things, uh, yeah. can purify one to the point where the, the highest teaching becomes appropriate. And again, you know, people Absolutely. people might hear this and say, yeah, but, you know, that's... There's nothing to do. I mean, why should we go through all these stages, purification and all that stuff? It's all one. It's all nothing is real. Yada 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 yada. But yeah. you remember that uh, that that thing at the Science Non-Duality Conference that you attended. The, one of the main points was this, based on this Tibetan saying that, don't mistake understanding for realization. Yes. You know. Yes. And then the second part yes. was don't mistake realization for liberation. But I guess we're yes. dwelling on this because it is sort of a little bit popular or common to, to do this, to sort of read a lot of books, get good with the words, and then somehow convince yourself that that's what, that you're actually living what all these words are referring yeah. to. Yes, yes, yeah. Um. Maybe we've covered this point, but we're just, we're just talking about the importance of actual experiential realization as opposed to some kind of intellectual understanding that can become yes. quite hypnotic. I mean, if, if, you do, yes. if you read enough books, you can really get this stuff drilled into your head. Yes. But it's you not the same. The right... as, yeah. No, it's not the same. If this is only intellectually, intellectually understood, it's not going to remove the, the separations. It's going to be just a temporary measure and eventually 
that separation is going to surface again. Yeah. So let's let's backtrack a bit. I listened to your interview with Jerry Katz, and uh, you said a lot of interesting things. But one is that we haven't told people yet. You left home at the age of 17 to go to Australia because you had an aunt in Alice Springs, and you decided yes. to go there. You didn't speak a word of English, and your parents didn't want you to go. You were too young and everything, but you, you insisted, and, and so finally you went. That so, confirmed in my village that I was crazy. That you were crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> And then you just got odd jobs and washing dishes and this and that. And, and tell the story a little bit about how, how you eventually kind of like found a spiritual book and you kind of learned English by studying a spiritual book and looking up the yes. words in a dictionary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, when I was little, one of the, one of the things uh, that I used to do, I used to have two symbols and I didn't know what they were, but I, if you go to my house, they're, they're carved in every wall, on the roof, everywhere. There were two symbols there, and I kept on drawing them, and I kept on saying to my parents and my friends, I have to remember these two symbols, they're very important. And my mom tells me that I used to, since I started drawing, I started making these things. And I didn't actually know what they were. And when I got to Alice Spring at 17, I was walking down Toll Street, which was the only road, didn't even have asphalt, it was just a dirt road, with just a tiny little shop. And I was walking down with my cousin and sort of a, I looked on the shop window and there was a book and on the, on the cover of the book, there was uh, one of the symbols that I'd been drawn since I was a, a little child. And when he and I bought the book. It was like and, a mandala uh, or a lotus or something? It, it was a lotus flower. Hmm. There were two symbols that what I know now to be. One was the, uh, the lotus flower, the thousand petal lotus. Mm -hmm kept on going on on and on forever. I would draw it and sort of go off the page. Mm. And the other one was a geometric shape, which mm. I used to call the diamond. Mm. And uh, I've got an idea now that, what that is. But, you know, I know uh, that I brought him back from past lives mm -hmm. where I had been in Tibet and uh, India, different past lives that I lived in, in there. I know that this sounds crazy <laughs> to yeah. some people that don't, you know, some people think, oh, past lives, you know. But well, to this audience, I think it doesn't sound crazy. No. Yeah, people are used to the idea. Yeah. Although, you know, since we've been talking about the, the kind of the radical non-dualist, some of them say, no, there couldn't be past lives because there's no person. And so if you're going to have multiple lives, who is this person that's having them? That yes. That's not possible. But um, it, that sort of denies the whole notion that there are relative realities, at least apparent relative realities, and that there are subtle relative realities as well as gross, and that if the physical body yeah. dies, there's still a subtle yes. body which doesn't die yes. and can go into another physical body. So it seems That's pretty right. logical to me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and so you remember some of those past lives. So you must have like yes. been doing spiritual practices and living spiritual lives and all that in, uh, in past yes. lives. Yes, I remember some really hard lives that I lived, you know, one in particular. Austere. Um, very austere, yeah. Mm. One, I was like this uh, sadhu living in a mountain and uh, just eating grass. I was so skinny. <laughs> I couldn't even tell that whether I was man or woman, you know. Wow. It was so, and um, another one, another one that really uh, sort of affected me this life was um, I was, um, uh, a wandering monk mm -hmm. in, in a group, you know, that we'd never stayed anywhere and um, we had nothing and we just begged. 
and um, went around just like that and uh, praying and devoted to God. And um, and I was a, a young man and um, I did everything. I was so devoted. I, I, so, I loved God so much. Mm. And um, But then uh, when uh, it was time for me to die, I was lying down, I remember lying down on the on the ground and some of the other monks were near me. And the last few words were like, I said to the old monk, um, I've done everything for God, everything. I sacrificed everything and he has never visited me. Mm. And I was heartbroken. I, I died heartbroken because I've done, I'd done everything for his love and I never got it. Mm. And uh, I think that had an effect in this in this life, yeah. you know, that surface in my teenage years where there was a bit of rebellion against God, you know. Mm. Well, you're mm. getting it now, though. <laughs> and it's interesting because on God's time, a human lifetime is the snap of a finger. So, you know, here you are dying. Oh, I've never gotten God's love. And God is patient. yeah, God is patiently yes. just overseeing yes. the universe. And, and in the snap of a finger, here you are, you know, realizing God. And on another level. In a fresh body. You know, on another level, time and space, it's all happening at the same time. Exactly, yeah. So, so I'm dying in this moment, in this place. Right. <laughs> complaining yeah. that God is not here. Yeah. Speaking of sadhus, uh, this friend of mine who lives in, in, in the Himalayas sent me a nice little story. He said that there's a beautiful sadhu in Gangotri. Gangotri is way up in the Himalayas near the source of the Ganges, who loves your Buddha at the gas pump stuff. He lives in Gangotri year-round, much of the time with no electricity. His kutya, which is a little hut, buried in snow. But somehow he finds your site and he loves it. <laughs> so, yeah. so hello to that guy if he's watching. <laughs> Fantastic. It's cool. When you had these memories of past lives, was it like you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you had a memory or were you meditating or how did these memories come to you? Both. Sometimes they would come in dreams, lucid dreaming. I was having that since I was a, a little kid. Yeah. Sometimes they were like lucid dreaming and uh, sometimes was like just like memories, like remembering something, you know, like when you remember something from childhood yeah. and it just comes and it's oh. Yeah. And you see the whole thing, you can go in there and it's like real, you know, there is no difference. And some, some, some of them came through meditation, yeah. meditation retreats and stuff. Okay, so you were walking down the street in Alice Springs and you saw this book and it had a lotus on it and you bought the book and started figuring out how to read English. And uh, so yeah. how, did, how did things progress from there? After that, I was on it I, and then I moved to Adelaide and um, basically over the years I uh, flirted and fallen in love with lots of spiritual tradition mm -hmm. and uh, I know that people tell you that you're meant to stick to one thing but that wasn't my case. What happened is that it seemed like the right teacher and the right teaching would appear and all that I needed to do is stay open and just work as hard and as sincerely as I could mm -hmm. and um, and they succeeded so from uh, and they were very varied you know from um, um, Nada Yoga to Dzogchen to Sufism to uh, Tibetan altars and uh, shamanic uh, things uh, Aboriginal spirituality uh, one of my cousins is married to a full-blood Aboriginal somehow 
I got a little bit of, of a taste of that. And it was great. It, it was actually, you know, I was blessed to be able to do that because it gave me the opportunity to see that one truth that sits at the core of every path. And it taught me not to cling to one way of, one idea of it. You know, and, and in some of my past lives, I remember that I've done that, where I stuck to one idea, mm -hmm. one, you know, I grabbed one concept and stuck to it, and I vowed never to do that again. And um, and I guess, you know, that has been the, the gift of uh, being able to see this truth in so many different traditions. Yeah. Who is that saint? Not Ramana Maharshi, the guy earlier on in the 1800s. I forget his name. He was a famous saint and, and Kali devotee, but he went through the path of great many different traditions and sort of found, went from A to, a to Z in each tradition and found that they all led to the same goal. I it's forget. the many faces, yeah. the many faces of God. You know that saying that you, you should dig one deep hole rather than a dozen shallow holes. Yes. But uh, here's another way of looking at it. Take a dozen tools to dig one hole. So that's, yes. that's kind of what you did. Yeah. It's almost like I didn't do it. It's, I didn't go out of my way. It's like the teachers would just appear. Some of the teachers, if I tell you, I tell you one, just one. Mm -hmm. We already, you know, myself and Leo, apart being in different paths, you know, with our job, we got to interview different spiritual teachers that came. Uh, and also we did our own practices. Yeah, you publish a magazine practices. or something, don't you? Yes, we've been publishing different magazines since 1998, mm -hmm. spiritual magazines. But... For example, one particular teacher was a, a dervish, a Sufi mystic from mm -hmm. Iran. And we met him at a Vipassana retreat. Uh, after Vipassana retreat, he was there. He was just wandering around the world like they do. They're like similar to the wandering monks of India. And we started talking about his love for Rumi. And Leo had this dream that he wanted to get a poem of Rumi in the Farsi language and translate it. And obviously, we don't know Farsi. And suddenly talking to this guy, we didn't know he was a dervish or anything like that, so mystic. And somehow there was this thing, yes, I love Rumi and I can speak Farsi, right? When can I move in? That's what he said to us. And he did move in. He, he lived in a house for probably six to eight months. And uh, it was amazing. And being waking up at three o'clock in the morning because he to Sorry. teach us different practices mm. and some of the practices even though we we were familiar with some of the Sufi practices from the Azra Inyakan side we didn't know about some of these uh, these particular practices that he was showing us you know one was the obvious you know the twirling but there were some other things like some other practices they were quite secret and somehow he was passing them on. And he was a strange man in the sense, the dervish is meant to be always very humble and never show how advanced they are. Mm -hmm. That's the old thing. Yeah. And so you always never show, he was always like, oh, this is just the grace of my master, my teacher, my guru. But then when he, he spoke to his guru on the phone, his face became luminous. Hmm. And sometime when he was in the backyard and he thought that nobody was watching, I would see his face was luminous and his eyes was full of love. And as soon as he, saw, he would see me, he would just, hmm, oh, I was just uh, watching the tree. And it was like that. It was lovely. Cool. And then he, he went back to Iran and, and he told us amazing stories of what really goes on. And when he was training, having to cross, uh, having to walk 
four or five hours every day to get to his teacher mm. and cross a river, you know, and he had to tag off his clothes and put them over his head and cross the river. And if he got there late, the door of the temple were closed and he, he had just done all that for nothing. Yeah. And it, it was his way of saying, oh, these pe people in the West, you know, they think they're suffering, doing meditation and stuff. You have to really work hard in those places. Yeah. Really that points to an interesting principle or interesting point, which is that the sincerity and the ardency of one's search often correlates with the, the fullness of the results, at least I've seen. You know, people who are sort of yes. lackadaisical about it, eh, yeah, whatever, yes. you know, maybe I'll meditate yes. someday or something or read a yes. book. They don't get much, but the people who are just on fire usually end yeah. up having very much more profound realizations. Yeah. You know, people people tend to worry about the teacher more. You know, is this a good teacher? Has she got the right career? Uh, Have they got the right lineage? But it's really nothing to do with the teacher. It's to do with the student, how earnest they are. Yeah. You know? And, you know, it's, it's almost the teacher is there, um, you know, to help, you know. And me personally, my, my way of teaching is that I try to tune in to the person and try to help them. Um, for them to discover what they need, because I feel that um, sometimes if a teacher tells someone what to do, it just doesn't work. Yeah. That's an interesting point about that it's not so much the teacher as it is the, the, the student. I mean, I think mm. both, both are important, but it's, there, mm. there's a story from the Mahabharata where um, Arjuna, the great warrior, uh, had this great archery teacher, and his archery teacher was supposed to be the best, and, and he, he made the teacher promise him that um, he would make him, Arjuna, the best archer in the world. And, uh, but the archery teacher had this other student named Dhruvya, and Dhruvya was a very sincere and dedicated student, and he kept getting better and better and better at archery, and to the point where he was beating Arjuna, and Arjuna said, hey, you, teacher, you made me this promise, you got to get rid of this guy. So the teacher had to abide by his promise, so he sent Dhruvya away. And uh, Dhruvi uh, built a statue of the teacher and just worshipped the statue and de 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 dedicated himself to the statue and kept practicing archery and got to the point where he was really good, you know, way better than Arjuna, just from having the statue as his teacher. But it was really his determination as a student that mm -hmm. yielded the, the results. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, after realization, there is definitely an energy that comes through the body of the realized individual. But this energy has nothing to do with the teacher. It's not something that you can turn it on and off. And what I've noticed is that this energy sometimes is very strong. And actually, when it's very strong coming through this body, Leo can't even sit next to me. <laughs> Can't even sleep in the same bed. It just upsets him too much. You mm. know, like um, it stirs him up. So he goesn't sit on the other side of the couch. <laughs> and I say, oh, there he is again. <laughs> but it's nothing to do with the, with, it's not a conscious thing. And I've noticed that this energy seems to have, um, seems to respond to the openness of the other to this energy. Sometime I look at someone and my eyes start watering. They feel really hot. And I know that there is this energy, but I know that it's almost the other person that is drawing it out. Yeah. Nothing to do with me, really. Honestly, nothing. That's the pure truth. And it reminds me a bit like probably women that have breastfed realize to this. 
when I was in my 20s and I had my child and I was breastfeeding him, the child was in another room. And as soon I heard the child crying, the milk started flowing. Mm -hmm. It was nothing to do. And actually, what I <laughs> so it, it seems funny, but it works like that. It's not like the mother thinks, oh, now I have to feed the baby. It's just inbuilt in, in that. Yeah. It's just spontaneous. And it works the same way with this energy. You told and, that funny um, story about the restaurant. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell it just for fun? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, when I was um, actually breastfeeding, I like to go out. I like to see a coffee shop and look at people. So I would take my baby, Jonathan, and then if he needed to be fed, I would just feed him. So I was having my coffee and uh, the baby cry, and so I get him to put him on my breast. And so the milk is starting to flow because he's crying. But before I could put him on my breast, the milk shoot out a couple of meters to the table of the people next door. So it was quite embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, now, the so. principle here, obviously, is that it's the openness and willingness of the student that elicits the giving from the teacher yes. that's that's the principle yes. you're trying to make and it's not from the teacher it's the giving from that divine impulse that wants awakened if anybody that is ready to be awakened yeah it's teacher like, is just a vehicle she can't turn it on you know it's not as if uh, the teacher can go oh I, li I like you and now i'm going to give you this energy it right. doesn't work like that at all it's like a, you know, a reservoir of water, a great big reservoir. I mean, if you put a drinking straw up to it, not very much water can flow through. If you put a, a bigger pipe up to it, then more water. If you put a great big, huge pipe, then a lot of water can flow. So, so the reservoir is the same, but it, yes. a lot depends on how big the pipe is, so to speak, how, yeah. how receptive the student is. And the role of the teacher really is to try to be out of the way as much as possible, not to, to open up to this energy and let it do what he wants to do instead of trying to direct it. Yeah. So this brings up a beautiful point, which is that what is a teacher but rather but just divine consciousness, a vehicle we could say, through which divine consciousness can flow unimpeded. You know, you just said out of the way, be out of the way. And most yes. of most people and are kind of in the way of divine consciousness. Yes. They're they're yes. they're not a really obstacle-free conduit th yeah. through which divine yeah. consciousness can flow and express. And it's never-ending this process. That it's not as if a realization suddenly you know how to be the perfect conduit for God. You know, mm -hmm. you, you just you just learn and you keep on stretching and you keep on growing. There's never-ending to the process. Yeah. That's kind of what we were talking about in the very beginning, that um, in a way, realization, self-realization is the beginning. And, and after that, then the vehicle keeps getting refined, purified. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in a way, well, at the beginning of our spiritual journey, the progress, if we want to call it that, is assessed by the degree of inner expansion. As we get into progressively more subtle inner territory, for lack of another word, then the progress is assessed with difficulty because what actually happens is the dissolution of the self in the absolute. Small so the, self, right? Yes. Yeah. The, the, of the small self into the divine. Mm -hmm. And there are degrees, you know, and this is, um, this is the job, I guess, uh, of after the realization of our transcendence, the 
what some people call purification on the vehicle and it can take many years, uh, the entire lifetime, and maybe there is never ending mm. to degrees that you can actually dissolve more and more into the divine so that there is nothing left. So why do you think that in some spiritual circles, progressive development is a dirty word? You know, why, why do some people have a problem with that? <laughs> well, they have a problem. You know what I mean. Well, right? I mean, some people. Oh, you're progressive. You know, they're, they're, and I'm not progress. I'm not. I don't have a progressive orientation. Well, it's what we talked before. We are awareness, and as awareness, there is nothing we need to do. Mm -hmm. But unless this is been directly realized, it's not going to do any good. It's just a game we're playing. But it's also part of the journey. You know, we all been there. Has there ever been anyone who has directly realized awareness? and embodied it to the greatest possible extent that it can be embodied. Is, is that even possible, much less precedented? I don't, I don't think. I think it's an ongoing thing. I don't think any human being can actually do that. You know, I haven't done, my realization was about eight years ago. I mm -hmm. haven't done really much teaching apart the ones that directly have communicated with me through emails. And I've done a six weeks course, mainly to test my different practices that I had. And the reason for that is in some traditions, and I believe in that, is that after realization, you need to be, they tell you, you need to be at least 10 years yeah, yeah. Uh, maturing and, uh, you know, and I think some people, they get a realization, their transcendence, and they immediately start teaching. Right. And I think it can be a bit unsettling because I've changed so much since when it happened seven, eight years ago. At the beginning, I was a little bit radical, I guess. There's nothing to do. Yes, but I've mellowed, yeah. And that comes with experience and maturity of this energy. As we go along in this conversation, we'll talk more about spiritual maturation and what qualifies one to start teaching and whether some people might be trying to teach prematurely. Um, but a question just came in, which I want to read to you. Dan from London asks, you have talked a bit about lucid dreaming. I have also had a lot of lucid dreaming as a child and always wondered how it was different from waking reality. In later years, I've realized that perhaps the exploration of lucid dreams can be a tool to explore reality. For example, in the lucid dreaming state, I will often wonder at the source of the reality of the dream. Do you think that lucid dreaming can be a tool to be used on the path to enlightenment? And if so, how might this be the case? Absolutely. Uh, lucid dreaming is a, a very valuable tool on the path of awakening. And there are some traditions which uh, I've studied, like Zochen, where it's a big part of uh, waking up, and mainly because we can get a glimpse of our nature easier in, the, in lucid dreaming than we can, because more or less the mind is out of the way, mm -hmm. and uh, it's more directly accessible. And also, when we start having regular lucid dreaming, we start realizing that there's no difference between a lucid dream and ordinary life. It's the same. It's all one thing. It's all one consciousness. Yeah, the most powerful and dramatic awakening I ever had was in a dream, actually. Uh, it was just mm. really profound. Is we tend to dismiss them. We, te we tend to dismiss uh, dreams, but um, in some tradition, like what I just mentioned, Zochen, they're actually used uh, very much for uh, unfoldment and awakening. 
it would seem that, and see if you agree with this, that one the reason that is the case is that during dreams, or during even during sleep, if sleep is wakeful, that there's a, it's a much more innocent state where you know there's much less tendency to be controlling or gripping. With, yes, with, with, yes. And, and the mind has got less yeah, power. Yeah, more fluid, more malleable. Yes, definitely, absolutely. So would you actually advocate um, somehow culturing the ability to dream lucidly as a, as a practice? As I said, I haven't got yet much um, practice in teaching. I, I have a few students and um, that I work with. Mm -hmm. um, do you somehow in uh, enable them or encourage them to do lucid dreaming? What I actually, what I actually do, I actually um, tune in to what they need. Mm. Um, tune in to what they need and um, and I actually help them to discover for themselves what they need for the yeah. next step. I th I found that this is the best way. Uh -huh. So it may because be lucid dreaming, but it may be something else. Yes. In your book, and I think maybe also in your talk with Jerry Katz, I heard you talking a lot about effort versus non-effort and how, as you understand meditation, it's a very effortless natural process. In fact, you were talking about studying with some Zen teacher and the Zen teacher was talking about controlling your mind and not letting your mind wander and space out and all that. And you were saying, yeah, but my natural inclination is just to sort of relax into a vast settled state. Let, let's talk about yes. the role of effort in a practice yes. or, or effortlessness. Yes. yes. Okay. When I was attending, I've done many meditation retreats in mm -hmm. the past with different traditions. Mm -hmm. So I guess if we start talking with that, and even with the one that I did here, uh, the six weeks, you know, sometimes you look at a person, and they're all very genuine, but, you know, you see some that are sitting there very rigid, um, their faces is really hard, and you think they're trying to do something, right? You can see it in their face. They're just trying to nail something down. And then on the other side, you have uh, some meditators that... Um, are really loose and relaxed, almost as some fall asleep, and uh, they've got this uh, strange smile on their face, and you think, oh, they must be having good dreams. Mm. There is something in common with these two types. The minute that you brush them or touch them on the shoulders, or there is a sudden noise in the room, they jump out, startled. This is, to me, is proof that they were not here. They were just fabricating something in their mind. The first one was fabricating some really hard thing to, to hold, to grab, and some state, some mind state. And the other one, they were fabricating something nicer. But it just proves they were not here. The old practice, the meditation practice, is to be here. If you have to come back from somewhere, then it's not really it. It might be good for concentration purposes or it might be good for relaxation, you know, what I call snoring meditation. That's fine. <laughs> Sleep attention. Uh, that's right. That's right. But a person can meditate like that for many years and not get any progress. So I guess the practice is our awareness is composed of two mind qualities. One side is the luminosity, uh, what we call the cognizing aspect, um, the intelligence that allows us to notice everything that is happening. And the other side of awareness is what in some tradition is called emptiness or relaxation, an openness that allows everything to be in it. If we stray too much on one direction, we become controlling of our experiences 
and we tend to fall into thoughts because of it. And if we stray too much on the direction of the emptiness, we become too vague, spaced out, dull, and awareness is neither controlling or dull like a, a drug-induced state. It's like brightly alert, and but also relaxed because there is nothing we are trying to do. So that luminosity, that cognizing aspect, brightly alert to everything that is happening, but also deeply relaxed because there is nothing that we're trying to nail down, basically. And so this is what I call in the book the instant presence, where, you know, for example, this moment, you know, for example, if I do that, everybody's hearing that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, how come we're hearing that? Because in each one of us, there is this wakefulness that is always present, independent of our thinking. Now, this is the secret. And if, you know, the old secret of all this entire interview, of all the entire book, oh, you can get okay. this, you can go home. Okay, okay, everybody, pay attention. Pay attention, pay attention. <laughs> this is it. This moment of pure wakefulness, if it's left as it is, it is pure awareness. Mm -hmm. Our natural state is that close. But if this moment of pure wakefulness moves towards the thought, an emotion, a judgment, it becomes our ordinary mind, mm. which also perceives, but now is split in duality, subject, object. In our day-to-day -day life, what do we do? We're constantly chasing thoughts. We're constantly judging everything, right? So the, the practice of instant presence is basically, or any practice that does that, is to reverse this thing of the mind or what it does. And because the mind existence depend on this continual movement, because awareness at rest is your true nature. Awareness in movement, it's your ordinary mind. So we want to reverse that. And we want to just rest like this moment, for example. We just rest in this moment and we are aware of uh, sitting in the chair. Maybe we can aware, we are aware of sounds happening around us. Now we don't move from sound to sound. We're not trying to nail anything. It's better to have your eyes open. I know that in some meditation, you close your eyes, but for this, we want to be able to, to do it all the time, not just on, on the meditation cushion. When we're walking, when we are eating or whatever, we want to open up to everything. It's almost like a 360 degree opening as much as we can. And also we want to be fully relaxed. The right balance is probably 50-50. If you go one way, you become too controlling. If you go the other way, you become too dull. <clears throat> the right balance is brightly alert and deeply relaxed. And you can actually adjust that in yourself. And there are some different little practices. You know, for example, if you start becoming dull, you just sharpen the wakefulness aspect by being more bright. And maybe this is like, put your body a bit more straight. If you're starting to become too controlling, just allow more relaxation in, you know, which feels like a bit, like a sponge being filled with water and maintain that balance. And obviously, because our mind is always Actually, because awareness is always used to, to go and become the mind, at first we might be able to maintain this balance for a few minutes or seconds, but that's all right. We keep on going back until this becomes longer and longer 
and this is basically the practice. This is all we're doing. And um, we do it with the eyes open because we want to be able to do it driving. It's, it makes you an excellent driver because you're very alert. And also it makes you a nicer driver <laughs> because you're relaxed. You're not mm. going to abuse anybody, cutting you off or anything like that. Did you practice something of this nature uh, yourself prior to realization? Or is this something that you kind of came up with to help people okay. afterwards? What happened is I was, um, this was probably four or five years before realization. And I'd done other practices. And at that time, I was doing the breath meditation, the, the Zen type of meditation. And one day, I just heard a sound in the valley. This meditation center was in beautiful part of Adelaide, Adelaide Hills. I heard a, a dog barking. And somehow, it felt like that dog was barking within myself. And then I heard another sound. Somebody coughed in the room. And again, you know, and suddenly it was like I was the space that contained all these sounds that were arising. And so what I did, it only lasted a very short time. But what I did, I tried to repeat that by opening up to the sounds around myself. So it was like it was like I was being guided and also I was having dreams towards this technique. And I never really encountered I had encountered other varieties of it. And actually it was um, only in the last couple of years that I've met this um, Zochen master, deeply enlightened man. And um, he actually has some, not like this technique, but a variation and when I, talk to him, he actually said, oh, you must have been in Tibet with us. Mm. You know, you're one of us. So it was a variation of what he was already teaching. Not quite exactly the same. And he, he was amazed that, well, actually wasn't amazed that um, somehow I got it. I told him that I had some Tibetan teachers that were teaching me in that period. Yeah. Mm. There's a Vedic saying, be easy to us with gentle effort. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, Exactly. Absolutely. And when I learned mm. to meditate back in the 60s, the principle of it was that it had to be effortless and that um, effort would only interfere with the process because effort, effort tends to sort of agitate the mind and, and keep, yes. it, keep it from settling and becoming vast, yes. you know, settling down yes. and becoming vast. Yeah. And, and also there's this principle that the mind does have a natural tendency to seek a field of greater happiness and that the more settled state is more charming and more, more fulfilling to, to the mind. Yes. And so if you're making an effort, then you prevent yourself from settling into that. But if you, yes. if you proceed effortlessly, then you keep encountering greater and greater and greater charm. And so the, the mind kind of naturally moves in that direction without having to yes. be forced. Yes. It's kind of like the difference between yeah. if you want to keep a dog at your door, you can either chain it up and the dog mm -hmm. is straining against the chain, or you can put some food there and the dog just comes and <laughs> sits at the door. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And we must remember that the mind is not like the enemy. The mind is actually awareness in movement. Awareness in movement. Mm -hmm. There is only one thing, one force, and yeah. awareness a rest is our natural state. Awareness in movement is our ordinary mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's not the enemy. Yeah. 
It's true of the physiology too. It's, it's unhealthy and unnatural for the physiology to be hyperstimulated all the time. There might be situations in which it needs to be to, to respond to something, but one becomes habituated sometimes if there's constant stress and the, the, you know, the whole blood chemistry is thrown off and there's just this constant agitation in the body which is unnatural and unhealthy. And you know, it's much more natural for the body to be in a sort of a state of ease and equilibrium and function in that, in that condition. And so I think what you're talking about is something which might be able to inculcate that kind of um, style of functioning. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you're right. However, you know, the way you presented it, you know, you said, well, you could be in this, in this sort of, you know, you can be in this state and that is self-realization, at least a brief glimpse of it. But as soon as the thoughts percolate up, then you, you get drawn off. And so it's, that implies that it's very delicate at first, or very, very tenuous. Very delicate, yeah. yes. And that it it's has like, to be stabilized in some way. And the stabilization happens by every time we find ourselves, we are somewhere else with our mm -hmm. thoughts, we just bring it back. No judgment. We, we don't put any judgment, oh, I should have done that, I spiced out, whatever. And also the moment that you remember to come back, you're already back. Mm. So there is no effort. So it's just like little drops, little drops, little moments of wakefulness, mm -hmm. and then another, and then another, and they get longer and longer. And then the old thing, you know, right now, most people, we have this, this thing where we, the default position is the mind thinking, judging everything. Eventually, the whole thing switches and the default position is the mind at rest, you know, awareness at rest. And, um, and we still can use the mind. It's not as if we become some mush and we can't do anything. We can't, we can't function in the world and we can't feed ourselves and we can't work and we can't look after our family. Not at all. We, we actually become a lot more efficient, I guess, in mm. life, you know, more efficient, more alive, more connected. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a verse in the Gita which goes, Yoga Karma Sukoshalam, which means yoga is skill in action. And yoga, of course, means union. And so the, the principle there is that if you can get established in a unified state, uh, then on that foundation you can actually be much more skillful in action than, than not, than otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There are some things after realization, and I'm not sure whether this is something that happens to everybody, that I've noticed that seem to deteriorate. <laughs> memory is one yeah, of them. Yeah, you were saying somehow your memory. My, yeah. Somehow it's like I find myself, uh, you know, my job is quite um, detailed, um, uh, you know, with publishing and stuff. And uh, uh, things that I've done for years and years and years, uh, every time I do it again, that action, it feels like I'm doing it for the first time. So something like that, it's getting a little bit better. It was really shocking when it first happened. I mean, I was having weird things, you know, Leo knows, you know, we would be meeting in town and usually would like to go to a music shop and I would like to sit in a coffee shop again, watching people. And then after a while, he'll come back and wait for me to get up to join him. And I would just be looking at him. And to me, honestly, it was like, I didn't know him. Who is this man looking at me? Who is this strange man? It's true. It's absolutely true. And 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 he's looking at me, and he's thinking, you know, he's seeing this face. You know, after a while, he was used to it. It's like the minute he moved out of my 
consciousness. Then he was like, when he came back in, I had to readjust to, mm. to recognize him. It's really weird. You should it's have had him wear a little sign. Hi, I'm Leo. I'm Leo. He's I'm not, your partner. Not, <laughs> no, he was like, hmm, who is that old man looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I think this is just a phase, though, right? It is a phase. It's, yeah, it's, it's an integration it's phase. It's not happening as much anymore. No, right. it's not happening. Byron Katie, you know, she had to learn how to brush her teeth again and stuff after her awakening. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Eckhart Tolle wasn't good for much other than sitting on a park bench for a couple of years. Yeah. You know, so sometimes the, you know, when the transcendent, especially when it comes on very uh, suddenly it's, and fully, you know, it can take quite some time to learn yes. to function again. Yes, yes, absolutely. I didn't get that bad, uh, mainly because I've got a very demanding job. Mm -hmm. I've got more than one job. I've got 30 different hats that I have to wear yeah. every day. And um, and so in a way it was like root shock. I had to, I had to, I had to make it work. And yeah. so I had notes everywhere, um, trying to remember things and uh, stuff like that. And I think that in a way it was good because he, he got me to be a bit more- Integrated. You know, integrated. Yeah, yes. yeah, it's good. I mean, if you had yeah. been able to just sit in the garden and stare at the flowers, I wanted to do that. Yeah, you, you wanted know, to really do that. I really wanted yeah. to do that. I really, I, I, I just wanted to go into a cabin in the middle of nowhere and live the rest of my life there. I realize now that that would have been a very selfish thing to do, but that's how I felt. Yeah, Divine had other plans for you. Yes, and you know, when when you're asked to descend, you might refuse, you know, and eventually, you know, it's like you come down, you know, partly because of the love. Uh, that you feel for the beloved and partly because you know that if you continue to resist you you might be kicked down here again yeah you might be a, mm, mm. i think there is no choice this is part of the plan there's no, no yeah. other way that's another verse from the gita you know yoga stakur karmani established in yoga perform action so it's not just like we get established in yoga and just veg out you know but no. have to perform. And because, I mean, wouldn't you say, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but true realization is not, it's something that's going to be um, there under all conditions. You know, whether, yes. whether you are doing something, driving in heavy traffic or yes. sitting, looking at the flowers, it has to, and if it can't be yes. re maintained under all conditions, then it's not really a true realization or not really a, yes. a mature realization. Absolutely, yeah. Has to be lived. In, in fact, like I've met these amazing uh, monks from different tradition. Um, the ones that I'm talking about right now, I'm thinking are Tibetan ones. You know, they must sit and meditate for hours. Mm -hmm. And when the bell ring, they are fully here, alert. They get up and on with their task. There is no adjusting. There is nothing. They're just in the world and they're so very efficient. Sometimes in meditation freeze, you see people, you know, after the two couple of hours of meditation, they come out and they're all spicy and, you know, soft, they have to readjust to the world. There's none of that. It's yeah. just here, 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 fully integrated. And that's where you notice, you know, some of these long-term meditators. I met this um, beautiful um, monk. He had been a monk since he was three years old and he was now like, I think it was 97 mm. and it was just amazing. He couldn't speak a word of English, but we still communicated. Huh. It was lovely. He was a lovely man.
Speaking of monks, you told this story about how when you were a little girl you used to, well, you told it earlier in this interview, how you used to float above the rooftops in a bubble or something yeah. like that. And then yes. I heard you tell a story where you actually met an old monk yes. who said that yes. when he was a young monk, he used to, in his meditation, yes. he used to see this little girl floating in a bubble. Tell us that yes. story. This was like um, Norbu, that's his name, he's uh, a Dzogchen teacher. And um, we were invited to, to interview him, um, would have been, I don't know, three, four, five years ago maybe. And we went there, and naturally Leo knows all these stories because I told him, right? And um, and we were sitting there, and he was doing his uh, two hours talk in the morning, and he starts talking about when he was a monk and he was in meditation, and he would always see this little girl in a bubble, dressed with this velvet dress, velvet green dress with little daisies at the bottom. Well, that was my dress. <laughs> uh, my auntie used to make all my dresses. We never bought shop, uh, shop dresses. And uh, I had this, uh, my favorite dress was this velvet, dark velvet green dress with daisies at the bottom. And when we heard that, you know, I was sitting closer to him, sort of towards the front, and Leo was sitting a little bit at the back. And I turned to look at him and he was like, <laughs> that's you <laughs> what's going on and yeah. so, so this monk had experienced that 30 40 years ago when you yeah. were actually having the, the floating in a bubble experience uh, yeah but then you know time and space as i said before it's all it's all you know it's pushed, not yeah. really linear yeah. yeah it's not linear so that's amazing yeah that's interesting mm. and that's why i felt a very strong resonance with this teacher before we met him mm -hmm. we had never met him before and i kept on seeing his picture in various uh, Shambhala magazine or whatever Leo buys. And I kept on saying to Leo, oh, it's like he's calling me from the picture. It's like there is a connection. Mm. And there was a connection, yeah. That's cool. Mm. I heard you say that you always had this feeling like in this lifetime you were just destined to be realized. It was just going to happen. And you were kind of kind of sloppy as a as a spiritual practitioner compared to Leo, for instance, and compared to some other people. You know, you're just like, eh, hey, meditate, not meditate, whatever. But I'm, yes. I'm, it's going to yes. happen. You know? <laughs> and yes, yes. And it happened. Yeah, yeah. And Leo knows. And uh, you know, it's like we've been together sort of a thirty over thirty years. Mm -hmm. I've always told him that, and he he, he sounded. If somebody heard me, sounded. Oh, She's like, opposite. you know, she doesn't want to do anything. She thinks somehow she's going to be special to get this thing. But it wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't like a feeling. It felt like this lifetime is my turn. I don't know. She's had um, a premonition or something. Yeah. And, and, and I know I've worked really, really hard in past lives. Yeah. I worked really hard. You paid your dues. Yeah, and it was just an internal feeling. It, it it wasn't in my mind. It was more in my heart that told me, this time is your time. Okay, so we've alluded a lot to your awakening, to your realization, and we've kind of done that in a way that takes just sort of takes it for granted that everybody knows exactly what you experienced when you had this realization, but I don't think they necessarily do. So tell us about the actual experience of this realization that we've been discussing what actually happened is um, that I was doing this type of meditation well what I now call instant presence I've been doing it for several years at this meditation retreat a local meditation retreat we used to meditate Tuesday and Saturday after day and then 
once a month we used to have a four days retreat and then seven days retreat every second month and um, we did that for a long time and so i'd been doing that for a while and a few months before the realization happened before the, the realization happened yeah. yeah i started getting lots of energy in my body uh, sometimes the energy was so strong it was shaking the body Naturally, I told the meditation teacher and she said, this is a good sign, you know, keep going, keep going. By the way, she knew that I was doing something different than what she was teaching. And uh, well, at first she was a little bit like, well, I don't know, because she didn't know about this particular thing and she thought I would be lost in the mind. But somehow she knows that I was doing something different. She said, this is a good sign, keep going. And then we did this seven days retreat and it was the last day of the retreat in the morning. So I sat for uh, the last session and then we would have lunch and then everybody would go home. The minute that I sat, within like maybe first few minutes, I started feeling this, um, first this intense energy coming, coming up. And it was so strong that it actually scared me. And then I closed my eyes again and I saw what I can only describe as a black reflective surface my attention was caught by it and when I looked at it still all happening on on the on the inner I just realized that I was watching myself moving but the self wasn't the self that I knew myself to be it wasn't this self it was something so big and terrifying terrifying that um, my mind just fainted I just couldn't even now, I can't actually even talk about it. Really? I just say it was like dark radiance. You can't talk um, about it because it's hard to describe or you can't talk about it because it brings up feelings of that terror that you experienced? No, no, no. It, it's just, I don't know what words Hard to, to describe. Use. Yeah, okay. Yeah, very hard to describe. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. A dark, reflective surface, right? <laughs> doesn't say much. Right. And yet there was so much. Contradiction in, in terms, really. Yeah. All I remember, the next thing that I remember was the bell that announced the walking meditation, 10 minutes. And, um, and I heard the bell and then, you know, I didn't even know who I was. And I noticed my, ha my hand, I didn't know it was my hand. I noticed a hand move, you know, all this sort of stuff, weird stuff. And, but then somehow it's almost even though I didn't know what was going on, my body actually got up itself as if it had an intelligence independent from the brain which wasn't there at that moment and the body got up and went outside and um and then slowly you know um i started seeing uh, everything appeared bright and and there was this love everywhere and this unity i sat there i didn't i didn't go to do the walking meditation and then lunch came and there was this thing where we prepared lunch in turns and this lady that had meditated there for many years like she came out and she asked me a question because i had done the salad the day before and so she wanted to know where i put something and and i hear my, my the words come out of my mouth she seemed to accept that she doesn't think there is anything wrong with me so uh, obviously i still look normal to her and uh, she didn't say, oh, what's wrong with you or nothing, you know, and the, but the, the words come out without me thinking of anything, you know, by themselves. I wanted to talk 
a bad accident in the Tashin T-shirt, but there were too many people, and so we decided to go home. And I, obviously, I told Leo on the way home, and he was like, "What was it? What was it?" I said, "I don't know. I, my mind can't even comprehend what it was." But it was still I going just, on even on the way home, right? It, this isn't just an experience was, which came and went. It was going on. Yeah. But by nighttime, it was almost gone, and so I didn't think anything of it because. You know, I've always had experiences like this, and they always had a beginning, middle, and hand. And I thought this was another one of the same kind. And then I remember that night, I started feeling really sick uh, in bed, and started coughing up this mucusy stuff. And I was sick for about almost a month. Mm. Uh, I was in bed, and a few times the, the teacher, the meditation teacher, rang me because she was because we were always there, and I couldn't even talk to her. I was coughing and coughing and coughing, and then one did, morning, did you ever smoke when you were young? Never, okay. never smoked till. Okay. Never, yeah. and then sort of a one morning, I wake up and we had a dog, and I ran my dog, and we decided to take him for a walk because I was feeling better, and Leo, Leo was walking in front, um, and we live in a sort of a hilly in the foothill of Adelaide, so it's a bit hilly, and I remember that he was walking in front with the dog. And I just looked over the valley like this. And as soon as I did that, suddenly it was like I saw that everything that I was looking was all inside me. Hmm. Like those mini experiences that I already had had. But this was a bit different because there was no actual separation between what I was seeing and our person seeing them. Sort of, it's like everything was arising and dissolving, and everything was me, and everywhere I looked was me. So that was, the, but while this sounds sounds fantastic, also was thing. This has always been like this, and I I never noticed. I could have missed it. I did remember that when I was a child, I was seeing things like that, and just I pretended I didn't mm. because for fitting in. You know, so it wasn't like a fantastic thing, like some of the experiences that I had previously, they were fantastic. This was like, felt very ordinary, very, very sort of, a, you know, like almost like when you see those those things that change, you know, they go to two images mm -hmm. and you go, oh, there it is, yeah. you know, and that's how it was, you know, and, and it was, how could I miss this? Look, everything. And, you know, I rushed to tell Leo and, and he thought, Oh, she's still sick. She's not making sense because I couldn't find the words to describe what I was seeing. I was saying, I am everywhere. So he thought that I meant confused, you know, like spiced out. Right. I am everywhere. And and this is what I also told the teacher a few days after. And she was like, oh, what do you mean you're everywhere? You know, she couldn't understand that at first. Yeah, but I was, I didn't have the words to explain it. And that's what happened. Yeah, you feel that that, um, that month of sickness was some kind of a purging that had to take place before the realization could happen? Some kind of a prepara preparation I think so. Because so. I, I, the doctor came at home and gave me all the stuff and I was taking the antibiotics and all this. And they were not doing anything. Yeah. They were not doing anything until I was done. Yeah. Until, you know, I coughed up all this stuff this kind of stuff has happened to other people saint francis of assisi went through something like that he got really sick before his awakening and really yeah and if you ever that. watch the movie brother son sister moon he almost died and then he, when he came out of it he was like <laughs> big right. change uh, and yeah. there are a lot of other stories in it's... various spiritual traditions of people going through a real intense catharsis you know physical 
uh, stuff. Um, uh, yeah, and then, my, and then when, that, said, when they work through that, then boom, there's a, a clarity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I find the body uh, for me personally, uh, the body's where uh, the one that gets affected usually. Yeah. Uh, like that. Well, mm. it's the instrument through which this is lived, is it not? Yeah, yeah. Well, some people I've talked to some other people. They it's more like their mind or their depression, maybe, and stuff like that. I never really had any of that. It's always uh, my body that um, seems to suffer, <laughs> getting adjusted to the energy. You know. Yeah. Well, even if it's their mind and depression and so on, that there are neurophysiological correlates to that. You know, there yeah. there are things happening in their brain chemistry and whatnot that correlate yeah. with depression. So. But yeah. but basically, the point I'm bringing out is that, that I think that the well, as Jesus said, the body is the temple of the soul, and and it's the the, the brain and nervous system and body are the instrument through which we live realization. And you can't, as Jesus again said, you can't pour new wine into old wineskins. You know, the the wineskin, so to speak, the vessel has to be fit to hold the new wine. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens. And Ramana Mahashi said uh, it's like an elephant entering a tent. Good point. Or something along those lines, right? Sometimes it does a little bit of damage. Yeah. yeah. Or else the mm. tent has to be expanded <laughs> to, to accommodate mm. the elephant. The elephant, yeah. 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 Maybe it has to be so, taken apart. So in a way, it's good for people that uh, this stuff happens for some of us that has happened slowly and gradually has expanded their ability to be able to contain this energy. Yeah. You know, some people that get it all at once without any preparation. Can burn them out. Sometimes it really throws them. I've got a friend, she works, uh, she's a nurse mm -hmm. in a mental hospital in Adelaide mm -hmm. and she's sort of a tuned in to spiritual stuff and she tells me a lot of people there, they've had premature awakening yeah. and they couldn't contain it. Mm. Interesting Kundalini point. awakening and she's there sort of trying to help as best as she could but unfortunately they just fill them up with drugs. I know it's a shame because and, and that's what all these traditions like Ayurveda and yoga and whatnot are about. They're about you know making the physiology capable of sustaining awakening uh, yes. and, and you can actually end up in a mental hospital if it's not capable. So uh, a lot of times those things are dismissed by some spiritual seekers as just being a, a, a fixation on the physical or a you know, they're, they're not really going for the essence of the, of the spiritual teaching, but they're really part of the package and having, yes. a, having a value for being able to sustain the shock of awakening. Yes, absolutely. Totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah. that has been my experience. You, you, you really need to look after the body. Right. Now, I have to really be careful what I put into this body, especially when there is um, some abundance of energy, because uh, it, it does all sorts of things, yeah, yeah. to the body, yeah. And it's a shame about your friend uh, and, and who works in that mental hospital, shame for those people who have had Kundalini awakenings and so on, or end yeah. up in a hospital, because if they had the proper care under the in the hands of someone who knew what they were doing, uh, you know, what has happened to them could be experienced as a great blessing. It is a great blessing, yeah. but they've yeah. just fallen into the wrong hands. Yes, and some people awakened without doing absolutely anything. Yeah. It just, it just happened to them. And I guess that's what threw them out of balance. They didn't even understand what was going on. They had nothing, nothing to, so they just went to the doctor and they were put on drugs, I guess. 
And you know, I think it's becoming actually more common these days because awakening is there's some, some sort of epidemic going on in the world. And, there is. Uh, yeah, really, in terms of more and more people awakening. It is. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. Definitely, there is a shift in consciousness. Things are happening. A lot of people are waking up, probably because to counterbalance some of the stuff that is happening in the world. Yeah. Try to exactly. Bring yeah. some. I think that's an important point. And uh, so, as a culture, you know, and as a medical, you know, the medical community and all that, really have to gain an understanding of, of this because they're going to encounter it more than more and more. And it's happening. I mean, there are more and more people. I mean, the next interview I'm going to do after this one, two weeks from now, I'm skipping next week, uh, will be with a, a woman named Joan Harrigan, who has a, kun, a, a place in Tennessee, which is a U.S. state, called Kundalini Care. And, and she actually, a number of my friends mm -hmm. have gone there, and, and she helps people who are having a Kundalini awakening, whose Kundalini might be misdirected or blocked or something or other and uh, helps them sort of get it going in the right direction so that they can blossom into a, a realization without difficulties and uh, yeah. problems. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard uh, from one of my teachers that um, at one meditation retreat, actually even through meditation, sometimes people can have happening too fast, you know, yeah. and they had to be taken to the hospital. But fortunately in that case, you know, the, the teacher sort of was looking after them, so they yeah. didn't end up in the mental hospital full of drugs. Now that's an important yeah. point too, because I mean, on the one hand, there are people who have spontaneous awakenings, they don't know what it is, and so on and so forth. But then there are other people who are spiritual seekers, and they get all gung-ho about awakening, and maybe they start doing three hours of fast pranayama, or you know, yes. just you know, some yeah. kind of intense thing, yeah. and they end up blowing fuses. So you yeah. have to have the safety per first principle when you're approaching this, this stuff. Absolutely, yeah. You need to know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't uh, necessarily play around with the Kundalini um, without knowing exactly what you're doing. It's a bit... Uh, it can be very dangerous. dangerous. It can be very dangerous, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it was Gopi Krishna who wrote a book about Kundalini, his own experience, and it was, you know, just hellacious, the, the stuff he went through. In a way, we're, it's... We're playing with fire. It's divine fire, but um, there's a real merit to having the proper guidance and, and proceeding yeah. in a in a sensible way. Yeah, I uh, when I was young, uh, you know, sort of in my twenties, one of the things that I actually explored was some practice that was meant to awaken the Kundalini, mm -hmm. and I immediately started having experiences, you know, like this fire coming up onto my head and I thought that my head was going to explode and as soon as that happened uh, the teacher came there and was trying to help me but it was like then I think I squashed it down and happened a few times and uh, that night I had a dream and it was a lucid dream and um, a teacher gave me like a, a blow up thing you know and I started blowing into it and it was a snake huh. at first mm -hmm. right it was a, I was blowing up this toy snake but then all of a sudden, the snake become alive, mm -hmm. and I couldn't control it anymore. It was a huge python, mm -hmm. and to me, that was you know the teacher was was saying, "Don't play with this." Interesting. And I stopped. I huh. stopped. Yeah. That's that's interesting. And of course, snake yeah. snake and Kundalini. That, that that's right. I, I got the symbol. Yeah. I was saying, you, right now, you think you're just in control, but once the python awakens, you won't be able to contain it. Wow. So, 
That's cool that you got that's, that guidance. That's the value. That's the value of that dream guidance, I guess, that we can tune into. Yeah. And that brings up a whole interesting point is who is who are these guys that guide us in our dreams? I mean, are there somehow beings <laughs> hanging around and they actually ultimately, yeah. ultimately it's only awareness. Right. Ultimately, is that one being that that is doing everything and taking the shape of everything, yeah. a stone or anything, you know, but obviously on a relative level, there are beings Ooh, like God. there are spiritual teachers here mm -hmm. on Earth and on, on other planes, I guess, talking in relative terms. Yeah. But ultimately, it's just awareness that takes on all those shapes. Sure. Yeah. Well, ultimately, the shapes are only awareness, and ultimately, if you want to say it, that's right. ultimate, ultimate, you know, the whole universe is just awareness. Ultimately, ultimately <laughs> that's it. There's only one thing, one player. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, again, you know, and or, uh, paradoxically. And or. It's both. It's, it's both. both. Right. Yeah. And so there are, you know, you and I are the same person. We're different people. Both are true. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And One so, heart, but two separate bodies. Right. And all these beings and these teachers and so on, uh, they exist in, you know, great numbers, not only in, in physical human bodies, but on other dimensions. On other dimensions. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. On other dimensions. Huh. And they will appear into your life when that time has come. That's what has been my experience. And I didn't have to look for them. They just manifested either in the dream state, in inner planes, or, or in the physical. Yeah. That's probably another good safety point, which is don't go looking for these beings. You know, you don't want to go off into who knows what, looking for who knows what you'd find. But if, if they're needed, they'll show up or they'll do yes. their thing. Yes, yeah. So anyway, so you, you had this realization and it took a while to integrate and stabilize and the memory thing, we've talked about that a little bit. Hey, you know, one thing we didn't mention in the memory thing is have you noticed that um, the memory in a way has become much more efficient? It's not like your mind is cluttered with all kinds of stuff that you really don't need to think about <laughs> or, or remember. Yes, yes. But when you that, do need to, to remember some particular that, thing, there it is. That's true. Yeah. That's true. A lot of the stuff that I used to remember before is not necessary, right? Yeah. That doesn't come up. But if I need to remember something that is really important, you'll be there. Yeah. That's what I found. So I guess there is that trust in that. So you probably don't go through your day with three or four songs in your head and thinking about what happened yesterday and what's going to happen tomorrow and blah, 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 while you're in meanwhile trying to do something that has no relationship to all that noise, the noise isn't there. No. The default position is awareness and rest, but the awareness in movement, the mind is still there. I haven't become a, sort of a spiced out individual that can't do anything. Yeah. No. So I this, can use that. This realization, this awakening that you it was five, six, seven years ago, eight years ago? Yes, probably about seven or eight years. I can't remember exactly. Okay. Something like that. And so what is your normal experience now as you go through your day? Describe it. Well, I haven't become a perfect human being. Nobody does. In a relative sense, we all have imperfections, mm -hmm. blemishes. I guess that's the paradox that um, on one hand, we are that one being which is pure and perfect. On the other hand, 
we have a, a body mind which has got karmic patterns and uh, karmic conditions. So even the most enlightened uh, teachers in the world, they're still human being. So nothing has really changed. You would have to ask Leo because he's lived with me. He's probably knows better than me. But it just feels that all that has happened is that I've lost some ideas about what was. And before, I always try to be perfect mm -hmm. and um, strive for perfection. And now it's OK. Mm -hmm. There is nothing wrong, you know. I guess that's the thing. We always think that there is something wrong. But what about if there is nothing wrong? There's never been a mistake since the beginning of the universe, right. right? What about if there is nothing wrong with the way we are? And what about if the divine just uses our idiosyncrasies? Is that the word? Idiosyncrasies? Idiosyncrasies. <laughs> yes, that's it. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. And what about if my experience has been, he uses everything. Yeah. He uses everything to experience itself through that vehicle, the way it is. I don't know, have I answered your question? Ask uh, me more if you Partially, want. yeah. So let's say you're going through your day, you're cooking, you're driving, you're talking to Leo, you're doing different things. Do you find that there's a sort of a, a continual multi-dimensionality to your experience where on, on the one hand you're active doing these things, but on the other hand there's a sort of a, a continuum of silence so that it feels like in a sense you're not doing anything. And also perhaps even more so that in a sense that nothing is happening in the external world because that silence permeates the external world as well. So on the one hand, you are driving and cooking and talking to Leo, but on the other hand, nothing is happening. It's, it's like this paradoxical, simultaneous, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but does that describe no. your experience? Okay, it, when I'm by myself, for example, mm -hmm. maybe this is where you've been, when I'm by myself and I don't, I don't need to exteriorize myself, you know, I need to exteriorize myself to talk to you now. Exteriorize, yes. Exteriorized, mm -hmm. yeah. Then there is just this profound silence. stillness, yeah. profound silence. Then it feels like when I need to exteriorize, there is the appearance of a, someone that is talking to you now. And so this movement between that and the appearance of the person still happens. But now it's not believed anymore that it's actually a separate person living in this body. So that's the difference. And that's, does the silence go away? Let's say the silence is all, it's always there, yes? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The silence is always is the base that contains everything. And then, you know, the example of the ocean and the waves, you know, the ocean mm -hmm. is still there containing all, wave, all waves and all the time. But there's still the appearance. So the appearance of the, of the person still happens. It always did. But now I don't feel that somehow I have to maintain some position in order to be a spiritual success. You know, I can just let it happen. You know, like, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with the appearance of the person. It's right. useful. So would it's it be useful. fair to say that now there's the appearance of the person and there's also this abiding silence and the two get along very well. Where now, yes. you know, 30 years ago, there was the person, but there wasn't the abiding silence. It was just the person yes. and that's, that was the yes. only reality. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. But they're both the same. It's like the sun and its rise. It's the same thing. It's, it's still all sun. It is realized that everything is ultimately the dark radiance of the absolute, everything. And 
when you see that, life becomes amazing, I guess. Our life as it is, you know, sometimes messy, sometimes out of control. It's always miraculous. So would it be fair to define enlightenment or realization as the realization, the awareness of presence, of being, of the dark absolute, as you put it, of pure awareness, uh, regardless of whatever else is or is not going on. But that's, that's the sort of the, the key component, is that, that that sort of vastness, pure awareness, whatever you want to call it, that's there. And if that's there, come hell or high water, no matter what's going on, then you could define that as a realization or enlightenment. Yeah, there is always the sun. The sun is the primary source of mm -hmm. all light. Whether or not and there's there is, clouds. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And the rise, uh, the rise of the sun and also the sun on a puddle of water, it's all sun, it's all one being, and yet appears as different things. Right. Um, I heard you quote Ramana Maharshi as saying, that which does not persist during deep sleep is not real. Is that the right quote? And please elaborate on that. Well, Ramana Maharshi said, whatever doesn't exist in deep dreamless sleep right. is not real. And actually, when I first read that teaching, it was like, whoa, there's <laughs> nothing in dreamless sleep. <laughs> right, so nothing could be real. <laughs> so everything is an illusion, right? Yeah. I guess that deep dreams of sleep, which we all go into every night, mm -hmm. all of us, there is something in there. What that something is, is that pure awareness, unaware of itself. So basically, it's like if we go back to the example of the sun, the sun needs an object. You know, if the sun is in space and there is no object, there is no light. The light happens when it hits an object. And that's when consciousness happens, mm -hmm. you know, which is consciousness is a bit different than awareness, uh, even though it's all one thing. In your terminology, yeah, the way yes, you, yeah. Yes, 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 yeah. So is your experience yeah. of deep dreamless sleep different now than it was before your realization? Different. Yes. And I'll, yes. I'll elaborate on the <laughs> question was, if you like. But, but there was nothing. There was nothing in dreamless sleep before. And what is you there know, now? I, well, I had same thing. It's Still nothing? Now. It's not a nothing, it's a something, it's the potentiality of the absolute, mm. it's where awareness comes from. Saying it's your awareness unaware of itself, because there is no object, no object. which you can reflect, yes. But well, it's not something that the mind can understand or even see. Because the mind isn't active in deep dreamless sleep, right? No. The mind is asleep, yeah. the senses uh, are asleep. But what I'm getting at here is that a number of people I've spoken with say that after realization, sleep has become different because pure awareness is never lost. And uh, even though there's nothing to be aware of, pure awareness itself uh, abides during the sleep state. Is that your experience? It's the, the substratum of everything. Yeah. So it's ongoing. It's not like... See, this is where I'm saying there is a difference between awareness and consciousness. Consciousness comes and goes. Consciousness, unconsciousness. Sleep, you know, you wake up. Death, the, you know, the, after you die, you know, consciousness. But awareness is the substratum that always is. Hmm. So if you are tuned into this substratum, then there is no change. On the surface, there is change. 
on the bottom, there is no change. So there is no change between what we call our wake life or our dream life or deep dreamless sleep. It's mm. just uh, how many waves are there happening. That's the only difference. Sometimes this um, absolute state or substratum, as you put it, is the Sanskrit word is called turiya, which means fourth. And, and yeah. Turiya. And so the, yeah, yeah. When the Ramana reason they, Right. And the reason they call it fourth is that waking, dreaming, and sleeping are said to be one, two, three, the, the, the three states of consciousness. And then this fourth is said to uh, be a fourth, not only just sort of like one more state of consciousness, but one which actually has the capability of underlying the other three, of, of being yes. there perpetually as the other three cycle through their, their, their routine. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And in a way that gets us back to another question, which is that, uh, an earlier question, which is that if there's a fourth, could there be a fifth and sixth and so on? Some say that the fifth would be what I just alluded to, that you know, pure awareness is there all the time as, the, as waking, dreaming, and sleeping come and go. Initially, pure awareness could be there by itself, no you know, transcendence. That could be the fourth, but then having it all the time, regardless of whether you're awake or asleep or dreaming, that could be the fifth. And then we talked earlier, and that woman from Adelaide asked the question of, well, would you distinguish between self-realization and God-realization? Some people say that God-realization is a further development in which pure awareness is there as it always has been since it got stabilized, but that the senses have become refined and become very subtle in their appreciation so that the, the sort of the divine in the world begins to be apprehended directly. Yeah. That's not really well, a question, but it's something I hope you'll elaborate on. <laughs> um, well, the difference between self-realization and God-realization, mm -hmm. I think, it's mainly that when we experience a self-realization, there is still a little subtle, not duality, but it's still something resting in something. So it's almost like, I know myself to be this. Right. And with God realization, you don't experience anything else but that. Oh. You don't experience anything but God. And whether this keeps going forever, whether there are subtler and subtler level, you know, every time you reach a level, you always think it's the end. But I know now that uh, there's always a plus step. So how far, how deep you can go, who knows? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Personally, I think there's probably, well, infinite levels. Yeah, like, no end to it. Like the many, many, many infinite faces of God. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, uh, that's how I, I like to see it. You know, and so you go deep and you see something else, and you go deep and see something else. And if God is infinite, then that would be infinite as well. I mean, if we think of the, you, you use the sun analogy a number of times, and the sun, the sun is just shining, but it shines off different reflectors in different ways and you know shines off a muddy puddle one way and a clear puddle another way and a mirror another way and so on so if we think of our being our, our body and, and makeup as a reflector who's to say that couldn't that even this one reflector couldn't be refined to a much greater extent and then even if there are limits to how much this reflector could be refined there could be other reflectors, you know, other types of bodies, which from the outset are far more refined than a human body could even become. Yes, and ultimately it, it is all decided by that divine principle that creates it all. Yeah. Creates it all so that he can 
discover itself more through a different configuration. So it's like, you know, each one of us is really providing a mirror, I guess, for the absolute to see itself through us. Yeah. A friend of mine likes to refer to us as sense organs of the infinite, you know, or just sense organs. Yeah. Nisargadatta said, um, this body is the body, the absolute, because yeah. it was at that stage where all there was left was it, the absolute. So it's, uh, what, about two in the morning now in Adelaide? Hmm, I didn't look for a while, let me see. Yeah, yeah. 1.56. Getting tired? I could stay up all night now. <laughs> You're probably going to have to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just cover a couple more points and then I'll let you go and stay awake all night. One thing you you said earlier, we just passed by it, which I find interesting, is that you felt that perhaps this epidemic of awakening that seems to be taking place in the world is kind of like nature's response to the severity of the problems we face and is and hopefully holds the potential for enabling us to um, surmount these problems and shift into a a better world. I mean, you didn't say all that. I'm elaborating on, the, I think, the seed idea that you brought out. But do you have any thoughts on that? I'm not sure. Ultimately, this is just an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have seen through our work, through t- talking to different teachers, this is happening worldwide. A lot of people, something that was quite rare, people are popping up everywhere, uh, waking up. So there is definitely a divine plan. Yeah. behind this. So uh, ultimately, I'm not sure exactly why, but this is what's, what's going on. And I think we're moving into an era where uh, maybe the, what I said to somebody, is the guru is dead. The era of the guru is dead. Mm-hmm. But but this, I mean, not that spiritual teachers would disappear, but maybe more the 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 the, the guru that is uh, some superhuman being with uh, super special qualities and perfection that is moving away, and what is coming is um, the era of waking up together. You know, uh, mm-hmm. so there might be still somebody, uh, a teacher there, but more like a friend, not like a superhuman perfect. Yeah, my guess is that there will always be extraordinary souls, you know, and but but even the extraordinary souls all have told us throughout history that hey, you can be like me. I mean, Jesus Jesus said, "What's all these great things that I do? You know, you too shall be able to do these things and even greater things." he, He said. Yes. I think that's the thing. I mean, and and even in that tradition, despite the fact that he'd said that many would consider it blasphemous to suggest that one could become as enlightened a being as Jesus you know, or something. And that uh, puts a little bit of a, a ceiling on that. Yeah. If, if we're all the one being, why not? Yeah, why not? And, but uh, I can see your point. Some people probably be very upset, but you yeah. suggested some other human being could achieve that status, that, that level of unfoldment, I guess. Right. Because there is this sort of attitude of we're all flawed and we can never totally overcome our, our inherent flaws. And Jesus, you know, this, this divine being was perfect and we can never be like that. But I, I, th- I think the point you're bringing out is that if you're a human being, then sure, there's always going to be some kinks, <laughs> some glitches. But there are great heights to which a human being can rise. And those kinks are the ones that, in a way, uh, are there 
because that one being once experienced itself through those kicks. Yeah, yeah. A little salt That's makes the I vegetables see, yeah. sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I heard you say that when you first had your realization and started telling some friends, they got mad at you and, and thought, who are you to say this? You know, how could it possibly yeah. happen? And you just, yeah. you look like the same as you always looked, you yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> you're not floating two feet off the ground. Yeah. You know? Well, your family and friends are the, are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, you know, which is all right. It keeps you humble. It keeps you humble. A prophet um, is not without honor happened. except in his own home. Yeah. But actually, that was one of my motivations for starting this show. I, I, you know, have a lot of friends in town who have been, you know, meditating for years, and a lot of them were having awakenings and, you know, really genuine and profound ones. And they would tell friends, and friends would say, "Oh, are you kidding? You're, you're you're just being egotistical. It couldn't happen to you, and you seem like the same old jerk that you always were, <laughs> whatever." Mm. And so they they got all right. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. So that's the way people are going to react. So I thought, all right, I'm going to start an interview show, and I'm just going to start interviewing these people and. Uh, show people that it's these awakenings are happening to people just like them and you know maybe that will embolden them to believe that it could happen to them too and you know hold because if you're totally close to the possibility then maybe you're gonna sh keep it shut down you know yes yeah. yes and I must say I love the way you do this show you bring so much openness and I know that probably you don't agree with everything that your guests to talk about but it's like, you know, you got a really open heart and uh, and you give the person a lot of hope and openness, you know, and, and, and this is great because, you know, only awareness can do that. Mm. Well, thanks. And it's not that I don't agree with everything the guest says, although we might say that in certain ways, but it's more like, all right, this person and I have slightly different perspectives on this and maybe we both are, you know, like just blind men feeling different parts of the elephant and we don't have the... The picture of the entire elephant, and so let's yeah. let's kind of rub these perspectives together and see if we can mm -hmm. both kind of expand each other's perspective. Yeah, uh, and we can learn from each other yeah. because, uh, as I said, all these are, are the different expressions of God. And if you want to know more about the divine, then by sharing with each other, we can learn those faces we might not know yet. Yeah, excellent. So um, you say you haven't been teaching much yet. But you're probably going to experience what I call the bat gap bump, where you know people will watch this, and within a week, five thousand people will have watched it, and people will start getting in touch with you. And and so, what do you have to offer people who would like to get in touch with you? I'm open. Uh, I I don't make any plans, really. Mm -hmm. I haven't made any plans. This is my second interview. The mm -hmm. first one was with Jerry, mm -hmm. and um, sort of a um, for me, it's like I just flow with what life presents if there were people interested in these teachings i'm willing to do whatever uh i need to do to get to them so physically you could travel to a place if the if, I that, will, if that were if there arranged. is enough teachers yeah right. if somebody can arrange it mm -hmm. i'm willing to yeah. go anywhere or you could do skype consultations you would do that uh, yes i could do that okay yeah. and do you have any idea what you would charge for those no. <laughs> huh? I've actually set up a non-profit organization that because what I want to do is try to work out some sliding scale because I don't want to somehow exclude prevent people, people right. exclude people. So I haven't really noted okay. down how it's going to work, but I was thinking of a, like a sliding scale where with a very 
minimal cost or mm. maybe even free for some people and going out for people that can afford it and, um, and stuff like that so that it everybody we're actually starting with this foundation we're starting uh, meditation for kids and um, for people that um, I have uh, handicap and also offering maybe troubled teenagers this mm, is all nice. in the what's going on and also to people that uh, can't really afford to go to very expensive retreats yeah. uh, all older people and um, this is mainly something you'll be doing in Australia or will you be somehow putting it on CDs or something I don't know. I haven't yeah. thought of it. Okay, no, it'll, it'll that's develop. a good idea, though. That's a good idea. Yeah, I'm like not you can sure. make a meditation just CD finalized. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we could do that. Or download. We really... kind of yeah, thing. that's a good idea. Okay. Mm. Well, I'm sure there'll be all yeah. sorts of ideas. <laughs> We'd like to interview a mix of people, and some it's it's fun to interview really established teachers like Adya Shanti and people like that, yeah. and who have a, a great deal of experience and wisdom. And it's also really fun to find people who haven't done much teaching and even people who aren't who have no intention of teaching they just uh, you know ordinary person working at a job or something and they've had this spiritual awakening so it's you're somewhere in between because you you definitely you know have stuck your toe in the waters of of teaching people um but it sounds yeah. like it's very much in the early stages and who knows what it might evolve into yes i don't know and when i first started thinking about teaching my first reaction was like, mm, I'm not sure, you know, and mainly because uh, I see myself as still having, I guess, uh, a as work a, in, progress. In, a relative, in a relative sense, you know, I make mistakes. And uh, then somebody sent me a little quote uh, that said, uh, the life of a Zen master is one continuous mistake. <laughs> now, I'm not saying I am a Zen master, but I guess that little quote sort of gives me the courage to keep walking and, and uh, trying to do what is being asked of me. There was a humor group back in the 60s who called Firesign Theater, and one of their phrases was, we're all bozos on this bus. That's right. <laughs> we are all a mess, and also we are that unconditional love that holds everything. Yeah, and I can't think of a spiritual teacher who doesn't make mistakes, uh, and if they, if they were to insist that they are beyond the possibility of making mistakes, I'd be a little bit suspicious. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'd be a little yeah, careful. There's no perfection. We like for our teachers to be perfect and we like ourselves to be perfect, but in reality, we all have, we are work in progress, like yeah, you said, that's yeah. perfect. And I like the, you know, that we're all friends kind of um, helping each other these days that's the culture that seems to be developing mm. that we're kind of all hold, holding it's hands really marching wonderful. forward together <laughs> yes it's wonderful yeah. yeah it's great okay so um i'll be making a page on batgap.com about you as i always do and people will read a little bit about you and be able to link to your you know there'll be a link to your website and anything else that you have um your book will have a link to the amazon page of your book and uh just to make more general concluding remarks, uh, you know, this interview has been one in an ongoing series. Um, go to batgap.com and you'll there's a past interviews menu and there are about five different ways that the past interviews are categorized. Check that out. There's a place to sign up to be notified by email about once a week each time a new interview is posted. Uh, you can always unsubscribe. There's an audio podcast, which we're still having problems with, but um, <laughs> I'll send out an email when that gets fixed. 
and there's the donate button which you know obviously this takes a lot of time and um, it's still not my full-time occupation I have a day job a couple of hours a day so um, any financial support people feel inclined to offer is appreciated so thanks for listening or watching thank you again Enza it's really been a delight I really enjoyed this conversation and um, we'll meet again you too. Yeah. it was wonderful yeah thank you for making it so joyful thanks and I hope you can sleep tonight yeah. <laughs> and now you need to take something to counteract the coffee. I don't know. Have a beer or something. <laughs> a beer? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay. What is it? Cardamom. Cardamom. Irene says that cardamom, cardamom, cardamom yeah. counteracts caffeine. So make yourself some hot milk and stir some cardamom into it. And maybe try maybe that. that'll yeah. help you sleep. I, I have some cardamom. I like to cook with different spices. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Mm. All righty. So okay. Thanks. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.